good internet it's the harvest of colin atrophy and i'm very happy to welcome you to episode 31 of radio harvester um i'm whispering because i'm in my parents house everyone's asleep i'm home for a family funeral uh it's a fucking drag uh when people that you love die and that is all i'll say about that this um episode is really um good i'm sorry i'm so distracted look the bottom line is i don't i never met sue before um my friend mary tremonte uh organized a screening of 13 of her films at babyland in pittsburgh pennsylvania and um as i was sitting through them i thought i kept thinking i have to talk to this person these films are phenomenal Um, I think our conversation went really well considering it was my second ever interview with a total stranger and the first one where I had zero context. I heard Instagram is private, so even when, like, the night, you know, the night before I tried to do some internet sleuthing, I was unable to dig anything up, and I had nothing to go on. Also, the name Sue Johnson, that brings up a lot of people that are in her on Google, you know what I mean? Um, but she's such a good subject and so forthcoming, and I think the whole thing went really well, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, bye. Seeing your films last night, it's um, so clear that you have roots in punk. Yeah. Right? Like, there's no there's no doubt about that. Are you from Toronto originally? No, I'm not. I'm from a, a city on the East Coast called Moncton. Moncton, New Brunswick. And Moncton? Moncton. M-O-N-C-T-O-N. It's there, that, it sound, Moncton sounds really vulgar to me. It sounds <laughs> it's, like... Well, it's a little bit of a vulgar city okay. in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and, but it's a, I had a great time there. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, so I definitely, what was interesting about Moncton was the music scene there. Okay. And so Moncton is uh, one of the few places that I think of having a really strong, in terms of Canadian cities, um, having a really strong musical culture at that point that was really um, influenced by... Uh, both punk and new wave and sure. metal, hugely. Yeah. All those three things. Uh, and when are we talking about? This would be the late '80s, early '90s. Cool. Yeah, and uh, Moncton still has a lot of. There's a lot of performers that are in Moncton. A lot. It's it's oriented around. There's a lot of band culture mm-hmm. there, and it's also a really interesting place too because it's New Brunswick is the only bilingual province in Canada. So we have, uh, New Brunswick has about 40-50% French. And so it's also a really interesting cultural mashup in that sense too. So it kind of mitigates the wasp a little bit as well. So that's a nice aspect of having the French culture there because it's, uh, there's so many similarly sized cities in Canada to Moncton, but it was a very, it's kind of a very specific cultural makeup that happens there that doesn't happen anywhere else. So it's a city that's like 120,000 people. You know, it's not a big place by any means. Uh, But yeah, so I really got into music and punk in a place at a time when that was 
there's a huge resurgence, I think, in terms of sort of alternative and college radio around that time. Like I sort of started out, a lot of my musical influence is from my big sister. Sure, was, yeah, big sisters are so important. Totally, right? And so uh, it kind of started out with, you know, R.E.M., Guns N' Roses as well. <laughs> like these kind of yeah. competing things in a way. Uh, and then went on to, I watched a lot of City Limits, a show called City Limits when I was a kid because I would be frequently, my older sister would be like, okay, watch this show. It was a show on much music that was all dedicated to underground music. She'd be sure. like, watch this show and tape these artists for me. And so I'd So you were like doing secretarial work. Yeah. In, for, yeah, cool. Yeah, That's for my so sister. Cool. You're an intern. Who, yeah, you know, would go out and it would be like when I was like, you know, this would be happening, I think, when I would be like nine, ten years old. Oh, yeah, that rules. And so that's where I, I was always really into music. And then um, it just happened that when I was around 14 or so, a lot of my friends started playing in bands. And there was a really supportive culture in Moncton of... Um, yeah, there was just a great band culture and a great underground culture for that. A lot of it was um, punk, but also, uh, I don't know what you'd call that sort of era of like Sunny Day Real Estate and those kind of bands that were almost a little more prog in a way, but they yeah. were like a 90s prog. I think of Sunny Day Real Estate as like an early emo band. But yeah, maybe know. that's, yeah. I don't know if that's accurate. No, I think that could be accurate But there's too. like, it's heavy in a way. It's like super emotional. Like there's like an emotional depth to the lyrics that I think was missing from like the Crucifix or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that's kind of always how I had taxonomized them when I was, I don't think about it that much to be honest, but mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So my, like my passions for music were more like definitely Sonic Youth, Pavement, Nirvana, sure, Pixies. Like yeah. those are kind of my big awakenings in terms of uh, music that I loved and that I was just like, oh my God, what is this? Um, and concurrently at the same time, so there's a city that people I think are more familiar with, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh -huh. And it's about two and a half hours away from Moncton. And so that was a place where they were doing programming where they were bringing in bands like Stereo Lab to play the Halifax Pop Explosion in like oh, 1992, yeah. you know? And so that was still at an age when I was like, you know, I'd be around 14 at that point. But just even having those kind of bands coming into Halifax and there was a really vibrant music scene in Halifax as well that where artists were getting picked up by like David Geffen Records and um, all that sort of stuff when it was like, yeah, this is, you know, the new Seattle or something like that was completely something that would get thrown around around Halifax. And uh, so that scene completely intersected with Moncton as well. Sure. Although Moncton had more of a hard edge. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Moncton is a more working class city and it's, yeah, it's a little more punk metal, I yeah. would say. Um, although everything was kind of allowed in a lot of ways, but I feel like what still persists there now is also very much of that. Did you ever get, did you get to see any of like the early Toronto queercore bands or anything when they were? You like, know did you what? Did you see Fifth Column? I, I unfortunately Fifth did Column. not see Fifth Column. No, but it's, uh, it's interesting. I work at a university now that yeah. uh, Kathleen Perry Adams teaches that no, as well in the not. other media department, right? And so, uh, yeah, it's like old school. Yeah, so that, how I interacted with 
those bands was basically through city limits. Like you'd see um, that on TV, but it was still, I'm sure that Fifth Column must have played Halifax, absolutely. I don't know if they played Moncton or not, Um, but it was still pretty regional. Yeah, for sure. So there would be a lot of, um, I'm trying to think of like bands that I saw that were from, I guess people, yeah, it was very regional because people wouldn't make the trek. The next major city is Montreal. And this was also, I think, before a time where airline travel was really affordable. And so right. it was like Montreal to Moncton is 10 hours on a good day. Ugh. Montreal to Halifax is usually 12 or 13. Yeah. And then there's nowhere else to go. I mean, you can kind of go to Charlottetown once you're there, but it's, I think a lot of people didn't make it past Montreal. Yeah. And I also think people, I'm like maybe five years younger than you. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of on the cusp of before and after the internet Mm -hmm. Um, in this weird way where like I think the internet was starting to exist in its ubiquitous form when I was still an adolescent but like no one knew what to do with it yet Mm -hmm. and so I remember it totally makes sense that there could be a band in a town eight hours away that you could potentially not even hear of Mm -hmm. in Moncton because there isn't this like kind of centralized uh, like subculture being um, uh, like aggregated or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. It was yeah. just all word of mouth. And there wasn't, there were some of my friends that were, um, you know, more attached to, I would say, national and international scene in terms of zine mm-hmm. culture. But that also, it was funny, that wasn't necessarily how I interacted with the scene. It was more just going to shows and, um, it's funny, there was a band that was really influential on me at the time called Eric's Trip, which is this Moncton band that, you know, named for a Sonic Youth song. And they have a real, um, they still do some really interesting content out east in terms of they run a festival called Sappy Fest. Julie Dewaron does, who's one of the members. Okay. And uh, they were a band that, in terms of their sound, was something that was um, almost a deep, psychedelic, I hesitate to say grunge, but a deep psychedelic wall of sound noise but also very melodic and very yeah and so they um to me were always the band that when i think of moncton i'm like what exemplifies moncton at that time and it's absolutely the band eric strip and they were a great um you know they'd like shoot music videos downtown and everyone would go to it and be in the video and it was yeah they were wonderful so this sort of you know, really noise, but also this kind of pop melody infecting a lot of it too. Yeah, for sure. So they were fascinating. I love like, a local band that stays local. Yeah. yeah, they really did. I think they got signed to Sub Pop for a few records, mm-hmm. which was, again, totally one of those things that yeah. in Moncton... That's like, a huge it's, deal. Yeah, it just seems like unfathomable that you'd be on the same label that like Nirvana started out on. Or, yeah. you know, it was such a like hometown for the win kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How how long did you stay in Moncton? Like you grew up there. I stayed in Moncton until I was 18. No, okay. 19. Pause. 19. 19. Yeah. And I was working at a convenience store in Moncton. I had worked in a movie theater and then I worked in a convenience store. Oh yeah, between that I worked in a call center. The big industry in Moncton is our call centers. Like yeah, ring like, ring, do you want insurance or whatever? Yeah, so I worked for the Royal Bank. 
That was my, wow. yeah. And they had a huge call center in Moncton. There was UPS, Purelater, and Royal Bank all had call centers and they probably employed about 10,000 people or so. And New Brunswick is a very economically depressed province. And so this was the premier at the time was like, let's bring some jobs that are more, you know, it was kind of this gap between, it was either you were working in food service or you had kind of a white collar job, right. essentially, but there was almost nothing in between. And so call centers were like brought in to do that. So that's another thing that I did during that time. But I ended up going to, um, I guess my friends and I weren't really, I don't want to say that we weren't university track, but no one kind of thought about going to university. Sure. I had friends who did go to university, but it just didn't seem like something that I was ready for. Yeah. at the time and I was just kind of working in Moncton and um, yeah at a certain point there was a really good undergraduate university that was about a half an hour drive away and I ended up applying and being like because I was always really interested in literature and so okay. I was like I'm going to go and study and it was getting like increasingly more and more depressed in Moncton and people were drinking harder and harder and harder like substance abuse has always been a huge sort of you know, thing in the background in terms of sure. Moncton and in terms of my own sort of, my original, I think, reason why I left was because I was like, I'm just getting, like, we just all get drunk so much. Like, it was just kind of like that. And that was, it was a hard drinking culture. The Maritimes are, like, drinkers. Yeah. People get sloshed. Like, and it's also a culture where it's like, oh, you blacked out? Like, that's kind of normal or, you know. Uh, yeah, for sure. All that. So... I ended up going to university in a small town called Sackville, New Brunswick, which is a half an hour away from Moncton and is a fantastic little kind of counterculture zone. It's like a little college town in that way where there's it's, like, it's just a hub for... It's funny because there are these, in Canada, there are these, th there's a few places that are almost like... I don't know if the term is sister cities, but it's almost like they're unified in their um, ability to have small music scenes and art scenes that also seem to intersect with queer too. And so Sackville, even though at the time, you know, this is going back to the late 90s, it wouldn't yeah. call it queer at all, but it had a great art scene. It had a contemporary art scene and I worked at the Artist Run Center there. Yeah. So I went to university there and was like, this is amazing. And then ended up working at the Artist Run Center there, which is Struts Gallery. And they had not only interesting people running it, but they had a residency program that drew in people who were like, you know, the best artists in Canada. Like people that would never normally come to a small town in New Brunswick, but they would get them. And that pollination really made it an interesting, interesting place as well. So it wasn't um, your typical college sleepy town right? in that way. And then you also got, you know, it was... I think like a lot of small college towns too, you also had like, you would see moments of like incredible violence there. Like it would just be, yeah, things, things could get very real very quickly uh, in the space as well. Are you fucking around with cameras at this point? Yes. Already? When did you pick up a camera? I picked up a camera uh, when I was in second year and I decided that I wanted to take photo. So the great second thing- Second year is? Second year university. University, okay. Yeah. Correction. I actually picked up a camera, a 35 film camera, when I was in high school. I went to a high school that was actually fantastic. It was, they're all public high schools in right. Moncton, but I went to one that was, you know, had the reputation as being the more arts based one. Um, and, 
yeah, we had a photo component to our art program. And so I had done darkroom processing in grade 11, I think, and then went back to that. I was really interested in it once I got through first year university because I was like, I'm not really, I love, my major was English Lit and I still am like a huge reader. Um, and in some ways that's, I'm always kind of surprised that I didn't just go into writing and yeah. I ended up in camera work. Um, but yeah, so I started photo again, I guess around the time I was 20 and got into the, you had to apply with, you know, either intent or a portfolio. I somehow put something together and got <laughs> into the, the fine arts program, uh, in terms of my minor. And that was also what was great about that university. You could just kind of be like, okay, I'm going to go talk to the head of the department. I'm not in the fine arts program but right you just walk in their office yeah and you ask them and they're like this is the process show me your portfolio and let's see you know yeah so i started picking up cameras again uh through stills but then concurrently how i really started working in video was through stress gallery okay and so they had workshops and there was no film component to mount a at that point it was a very classical university and still is in a lot of respects in terms of it's kind of like more like painting. You know, it's not like we were sure, doing yeah, yeah. the the other one in terms of art schools is I don't know if you've heard of NASCAD, the Nova Scotia College of Art and yeah. Design, which is in Halifax, which is, yeah. you know, a very, very much steeped in kind of a, a conceptualism and also had a huge exchange with 70s New York. Mm -hmm. and had very active relationships in that community and people like Martha Rossler would come and teach at NASCAD or like they had Joseph Boys there somehow for a little Whoa. bit. Like I'm just like they, they drew yeah. a lot of interesting people and in terms of art schools, um, yeah, a lot more performance, a lot more installation coming out of that school whereas Mount A was much more kind of like painting, drawing. Yeah, your, the kind of yeah. more rigid definitions of what fine art is supposed to look like yeah which is funny because the work that i've seen of yours which is just the was it 13 films yeah last night mm -hmm. doesn't feel like it comes from a tradition of rigid adherence to what art is supposed to look like you know yeah no definitely not and it's uh i mean the photo teacher wasn't the photo teacher was a landscape photographer but it was very free in terms of their approach like i never felt in any way kind of you know, oh, I have to be part of this tradition. Uh, but a lot of my influence comes from Struts. It's like completely yeah. traceable to Struts. I remember my first day of working there, the director, uh, Donna, was because I didn't really understand what I had been hired to do. And I kind of got a job that in retrospect, maybe, I don't want to say I shouldn't have had at 23. It was a unique opportunity to have at that point in your life yeah. because I got to direct the media arts wing of the gallery they had just gotten funding whoa yeah and so i ended up getting that job when i was in fourth year when i was just finishing up my bachelor's and i didn't really know anything about video art or any kind of you know installation practice or new media or you know yeah. contemporary art honestly and I remember donna sitting me down and because i was i think we had someone I don't know if um, these artists were coming up or it was just kind of like, I was like, so what kind of stuff do people do here? You know, I think it was actually much more along those lines. And Donna sat me down and she was like, this is my favorite video right now. And these are some people from Halifax that are doing this. And it was a video by uh, the video artists, Emily Bay Duke and Cooper Battersby. Okay. It was called Getting Fucked Up. And uh -huh. it's one where Emily 
basically it's like kind of artist point of view video, like one camera focused on you and it's putting a, what kind of bag was it? It was a, I believe it was a plastic bag. It was essentially like smoking crack and putting a plastic bag over her head and then like doing the re-inhale thing. And I was like, oh, I was like, yeah. So that was, you know, the, yeah, that was kind of my introduction to in terms of like, this is the kind of work that we're going to be supporting. This is the, you know, and she also showed me Richard Fung, I remember as well, um, on that same day. And it was, it was funny because it was kind of my like crash course. And I was like, okay, all right, this is where we're going. And those are within Canada. Those are two, um, examples of people that I would say are canonical contemporary video artists, right? And she was just like, okay, let's start, you know, we're going to start from scratch. Let's let's just give you, (laughs) we're going to give you the basics. Yeah. So, so she did her best to give me the basics. Uh, and so I think that a lot of my work comes from having had those experiences and being exposed to, um, the work through the Media Arts Center, I'd have to do, um, you know, we frequently did programming. It's kind of one of those jack-of-all-trades things where it's like you're writing the grants, you're running the production end of things, right? Um, and you're also screening all the content for the programs right. as well. We always did it by selection committee. Um, and I can't even remember if I had a, I don't think I had a formal vote in it. I think it was only the people on the selection committee. Sure. You could say your opinion, but in terms of the the structure of it. um, So you were kind of on the like curatorial side of the art world or like the institutional side of the art world mm -hmm. before you were working as an artist. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Like I was an arts administrator. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it usually goes the other way around, but maybe I don't, I don't actually know. I think it was just like a very unique circumstance that yeah, happened. Yeah, for sure. Because I think that, yeah, people usually, because um, I was so fresh with all of this in a way. Yeah. And that's also where I started making Super 8s because Struts had an event called Super 8 Hotel. So okay. my first Super 8 was made through Struts and it was shot in the apartment above Struts. Struts is in this like giant big old building that has apartments on the top of it and then it's the gallery on the bottom what year was that that would be 2002 i would say so not long before the some of the work that you showed last night yeah like it's because that work spanned from 2003 to yeah last year this year technically yeah the most recent one was 2019 yeah and that was your part of your first curated show is that did I get that right? That's correct. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that was curated by Amy Mitchell through a festival called Eight Fest in Toronto, and so they do. They're a small gauge film fest, yeah. and so it's eight mil, double eight, super eight, and then also any kind of installation based practice sure. around that as well. So, and you live in Toronto now. Is that I do correct? live in Toronto. So, now. how do you get from this arts center administrating? and like learning all this stuff and you just start making work in 2002, how do you end up in Toronto? I ended up in Toronto through, uh, that's a good question, my MFA. I did an MFA. Okay. Yeah, in, uh, in 2008, I decided to do an MFA. But between that, I left Sackville uh-huh. uh, and moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Okay. And lived in Halifax for five years and worked at a similar place called the Center for Art Tapes. Yeah. And uh, CFAT for short. And... There, I was the technical coordinator. And again, that was very much supporting artists, supporting residencies, and 
it's interesting because I'm working on a documentary right now and it's about someone that I worked with at the Center for Art Tapes oh boy. who was yeah who was I shouldn't say was who is an incredible artist who's a 16 mil and really performance artist and I met you know again it was kind of like stacked with people that were so yeah. interesting at the time you know and there was a really great um, it was kind of like a little bit of a changing of the guard in terms of there were some really interesting people that had been there right before I got there and then myself and another person um, came in that were kind of new and then the executive director switched but anyway it was a, it was a nice period there where yeah. there had been something that had been kind of created by um, I think in particular Rebecca Barker who was the executive director at Center for Art Tapes for years and um, who now teaches at NASCAD as well and yeah it was it was again a great place to work at the time yeah for sure it's tough with artist run centers they go through such iterations yeah and I'm sure that you know I've heard a little bit about in Pittsburgh filmmakers you know yeah I've, I have only, I've, that place was combusting when I moved here I've only been here for two years so I don't know all the mm -hmm. the um, the like footnote or sort of like cliff notes version of what happened at filmmakers that I heard um, which I I don't know anybody so I don't really care about saying this on tape is that mm -hmm. It's an organization that was run by women for years, and mm -hmm. then they gave the control of it to a man, and he sold everything, and now it's in. Uh, now it's fucked, basically. Okay. Yeah. That's but that's like, that's like the I'm outside the art world, like mm -hmm. kind of hot goss around town okay. that I've been hearing, but I don't actually know what the deal is. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a lot of people got fucked over by them. Now. Yeah, the the tone that I was hearing, yeah, it felt like it was not a good situation. Whatever happened for yeah. a lot of people. Is what are you going to do? It's hard to run those things. It is but hard to run those things, absolutely. I want to talk about your artistic practice, mm -hmm. and then I want to talk about some of your specific films. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your relatively stationary, like you're in Sackville for a few years, then mm -hmm. you go to Halifax, but you stay put. You're not like traveling a ton, or oh, are you, I had are you actually, moving all around? Um, I had gone to, uh, I spent time in Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah, I went to Philadelphia and did an internship with the Prometheus Radio Project. Okay. With um, another person that, I used to work in community radio, was oh, another thing yeah. that I've actually neglected to talk about. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so I worked in community radio and had my own show for five years. Nice. And uh, myself and the station manager at the time of that radio station we went and we was this in Sackville Sackville yeah we went and we did uh, some work with Prometheus so it was in Philadelphia for a little bit and I had been dating someone from Pennsylvania at the time oddly okay. enough as well and so I'd been to Pennsylvania a few times and then went and did this thing in Philadelphia and then through there went down to Florida and kind of all through the states and my mm -hmm. sister ended up moving down to Atlanta right at that same time okay. too. So I started having a lot more um, involvement just in the United States and then I also knew some people on the West Coast yeah. and had always wanted to ended up doing a few road trips up and down the West Coast from Vancouver to LA. Yeah, like one it, of the films was like some Yeah, in Los Angeles. Footage, right? yeah. yeah. And uh well it was all all over that trip. Um Yeah, it looked like West Coast kind of road trip. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, I kind of started traveling at that point too and then ended up right before I did my MFA in 2008 I actually always had this thought that 
I would really love Los Angeles and it wasn't based on anything other than having uh-huh. been there on a vacation essentially. I was like, I think I'm just gonna go to LA. Yeah, hell yeah. I think I'm just gonna check it out. And so, and I had this big idea for this huge photo project where I was like, I think, and this is clearly too one of those things where you're like, you need a change of pace. This yeah. is before I'd gotten accepted into the master's program. And uh, so I needed a change of pace and I went to Los Angeles and I decided that what I was gonna do is I was gonna walk the LA River. Okay. As an urban exploration slash um, walkabout. Yeah, yeah, too, yeah. You know, and uh, got there and decided that that was not, you know, that wasn't a great idea to do for a few reasons, both logistics and also, like, I had this idea, like, I was going to camp in it. Like, you know, you don't camp in the L.A. River. No. Yeah. So, but what I did end up doing was I spent three weeks and I just walked it every day and I walked pretty much every mile of it, which is really interesting and a great way to see Los Angeles and just get the scope of Los Angeles. And I had so many really interesting experiences through that. And that was what happened right before I went to Toronto. And it was funny because I'd moved back to Halifax because I didn't decide I didn't want to stay on the West Coast. Yeah. And so I was in Los Angeles for a little bit and then went up to Vancouver and was working. And I was just like, I hate Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't my scene. Good and so, weed, allegedly, but other than that, I don't know. Oh, it just wasn't. It wasn't yeah. my humor was a big thing. And uh, so I had ended up, I had gone back to the East Coast for a hot second and then got the letter that was like, oh, you've been accepted to this program in Toronto. And I was like, yeah. I'm going. Oh, yeah. So you're in. Yeah. I so that's it. how I get to Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, are you like actively, you're, act, I mean, based on the years in this, uh, in the program from last night, you're actively making films this whole time yeah. that you're like moving all around. And I don't, I've never edited a Super 8 film, so I have no idea what the... I don't edit generally. Oh, you don't? <laughs> yeah, so I in just, camera, I in camera edit, which is... in camera edit, okay, that which probably is, makes things easier, huh? Yeah, and it's so funny because I never thought about it like this in terms of my practice, in terms of... So I've got a few things I do uh, in film, and one of them is that I direct documentaries. Uh-huh. I have a, I don't want to say a commercial practice, but um, in some ways a commercial practice as a cinematographer for documentaries. Okay. Largely documentaries, I do some fiction. Sure. Um, and so I typically have a larger project documentaries take forever so if i'm directing it takes forever so i'm often working as a cinematographer which i love like that's one of my favorite ways to exist and um the super eight work is kind of like me blowing off steam from my other work in a way which often involves um you know i love i love what i do but there's something so great about not having to plan yeah and so my Super 8 work, I'm typically, um, I have a rough plan and I've been shooting long enough that I am I can intuit how to shoot things in terms of not having to, the last two films that I did, I actually had a shooting script uh, in terms of a shot breakdown, but I, huh. I've i only recently started working that way. And was that the car one? The car one, I didn't have a shot list. The car oh, one okay. I just shot, yeah. And that was, uh, and I loved kind of walking into that space and just being like, okay, I'm just, and I also shoot chronologically too, right? So it's right. a, I have to shoot the scenes in the order that they appear. Yeah. And for, um, for and the listener, take, yeah. just, there's a wonderful short film that I saw last night of a, um, like, uh, completely androgynous person whose birth gender isn't even clear, at least to me from, uh, the, film and they are dressed in like a classic like Americana butch kind of 
mechanic garb and the film opens with this person applying dark lipstick and then the rest of the film is just um them like opening the hood and like listening to the engine and polishing a piece of like an old classic car and there's something really goofy about it there's something really sweet and sincere about it and it's really um it's really it's like a it's incredibly charming uh just so you know what we're talking about when i say the car one thank you for saying that yeah for sure really nice um but that one in particular was one where i had the location and that was the one that i think of as starting a more recent kind of it's almost like a trilogy in a way those last three films that were in the the program truck for sale or whatever yeah buy buy this truck absolutely and uh a, a very specifically um like queer queer visions <laughs> I yeah. guess you could say of you know in, in Rat Rod that was a direct nod to Kenneth Anger I was, right, for sure. I was just like the concept I was like I've always like I, I loved Custom Car Commando and Puce Moments Puce Moment excuse me and uh, I think but with Custom Car Commando how the music worked with it mm-hmm. and but in terms of how I work I really dislike a heavily stylized i love to see it but in terms of my working method like i would never i would hate to have to work through all the logistics of like putting getting the car into the studio and putting it on the rotating platform Uh and like all like i'm just like oh i just you know and so i always thought it'd be really interesting and there was also something too about it that i always thought it was like this is like what i love about custom car commando is that it's this i feel like it defines almost like a gay erotic sensuality yeah. that is um hadn't been really defined up until that point in a way and it's kind of like you know the 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 visceralness of the feathers and the pink and the kind of even the way the hazy filter is on it the lighting like everything is um so specific and i thought to me i was like this feels exactly like it was directed by a gay man in the 50s and I was like, what would it be like for a queer in the 2000s yeah. to direct it? And so that's sort of where it came from. I was like, it's a real location. It's a live shop. Right. It's, you know, kind of found in terms of the objects. Those objects, we didn't bring them in. Like the, you know, they just had these amazing, like one is they have a Firebird in it too that I showed for a second that had the Tropicana on it, oh, which yeah. is my like, oh my God, that's, I love those kind of cars. And, uh, and they had a giant monster truck in there that we actually I filmed the digital version of it too and because uh, it was actually a commission oddly enough that was like a b-roll that I shot but I there's a digital commission no shit that, is that the one that's on the Vimeo page it might be yeah if it's although I don't I never liked the digital version as much so I might have I don't know if it's actually on there or not I, I didn't watch it but I just it starts when out I was if it's the one that this interview yeah I saw the, the yeah. you have a Vimeo page and I was yep um, but yeah, so it was, it was basically, and that's why it's the reversed as well. I was just like, what would happen if someone who's queer in the 2000s re-envisioned Custom Car Commando? And yeah. so that's where the aesthetic, the, you know, in terms of the person who is the main character in it, it's a friend from Montreal named CT, who I just love that the, you know, we had a very ambiguous gender identity going on, yeah, which was absolutely. absolutely part of it. And also being in spaces, too, that are, of course, very gendered. Like the, well, yeah, the it's these male-coded spaces, yeah. and it's and the, the garb 
mm-hmm. you know, is really male coded, but also the there's like such a history of butch appropriation of that kind of male coded mm-hmm. gear that it's like it makes I. I thought that was a very successful film. You know, I don't know. I'm just some schmuck. I never finished college. I don't know the first thing about art, but uh, it's like jubilant in a way. You know, where there's like there's a lot there's like a clear joy to it in the making of it. In the um, like, you could tell that you guys were having fun, mm-hmm. um, even though CT the performer is never really like cracking a smile or anything. Like they're taking their role really seriously. Um, but also like some of the ways that even just like the car is being touched, it's so tender. And even though the whole thing is sort of funny and over the top, uh, and like super campy, there's a palpable tenderness to it that I think is, I don't know. They're like some, I I want, I feel like I'm going to say something hackneyed about queer love or something, but it's like, it feels, it felt good. It felt really good to watch that. Yeah, I've always really liked the piece. The first time I showed it, I remember I was sitting behind someone and I can't remember what they said, but I could just tell that they were just like, oh. and it's a funny thing to witness when you're in an audience, Yeah, you know, and they don't know that, you know, you're the filmmaker yeah. that they're watching. And it was just, and I think it was because they were like, oh, it's too referential kind of thing or something like, I don't know what the issue was. It could have been sure. anything. It could have just been like, it like looked a certain way that they didn't like, who knows. But um, yeah, it's, I've always really liked it. And that to me is, I love shooting that way. That was in terms of the process. CT and I met up, we, I negotiated the location a couple weeks before, but right. I, because it was in a different city, I couldn't see it. And because it was also an active shop, the, the shop owner, it's interesting. So the person who got me access stopped working at the shop and didn't clear it through their boss. So it was a thing that I didn't realize was on the DL at the time. He was like, come in on Sunday. We'll do it on Sunday. And I'm like, sure. You know, that's when the shop's not busy, but I didn't realize that he was just letting us in and hadn't cleared it or anything like that. And, uh, but that's also part of making films in this way is that I kind of let myself just roll with it and not have to worry about all, you know, it's like professionally, of course I have to worry about location releases and all this sort of stuff, but, um, when I'm working commercially, but yeah, for this, I don't, that's great. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. We're punks. We just go and do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, we shot there and we just kind of showed up and it was very much, um, yeah, had a rough idea, had discussed it with CT the night before, but we didn't come up with shot lists or anything like that. CT was really instrumental in terms of picking out the, you know, the wardrobe and the black. Um, yeah. It's a mink. <laughs> it's is a that black. What that is? Yeah, it's a black mink. Uh, it's not a shawl. I don't even know what the right word for it is, but it's not a muff either, but it's something that almost you would drape around your yeah. shoulders and tie but it's but it's also not typically those kind of old minks are they have the head and tail on them but this right. is just like this kind of square of fat, uh, fur yeah and i said to ct i was like ct we need something that we can you know buff the vehicle with the vehicle is dusty and the whole point is to clean the vehicle mm-hmm. and you know ct was like i've got this perfect thing and ct yeah. does vintage in montreal and just has you know this space that is full of stuff, right? In terms of both for um, their shops that they do and just, I think, their collection. Yeah. 
So yeah, it had a real like boot polishing vibe, like the kind of reverence for an object mm -hmm. and the, uh, eroticizing the inanimate uh, in a way that I was I was pretty stoked on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, CT that was very much it was incredibly collaborative, which is also how I work. Yeah, I don't over direct people, right? Which comes from my work in documentary. I like to set up a scenario, and then yeah, I like to let, sort of let people loose in it. Yeah. yeah, is how I see my directing practice. Yeah, for sure. Was that um, so that you had a film of um, the Women's March? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that can go a lot of ways uh, in terms of like I think people's reactions to the Women's March went a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's like the intra-community discussion about the Women's March, where like we maybe air grievances a little more. Mm -hmm. Uh, overtly and then like the sort of like yes this is a good thing yes my republican uncle this is a good thing get out of my face or whatever but um, I think the choice of that uh, Huggy Bear song pitch shifted mm -hmm. made it feel like uh, much more overtly kind of critical of the white feminism sort of lack of praxis like it's sort of what are we even all doing here what is the point of having these signs what are any of you doing in your day-to-day -day lives like besides this kind of meaningless gesture um, and I don't know if I'm reading the wrong thing into it you're nodding your head so I think I I think that it, it's interesting in terms of the the working methodology I didn't I showed up to that as a Canadian yeah. and not knowing you know, you know, you know the overarching. You know that you feel like you should support and show up to something right. when Trump gets elected. And again, my sister lives in the states. I have a lot of friends in the states, sure. and it was it was something that I was interested in seeing. And I that was totally like I'm just going to shoot this and see what happens. And so it's interesting in terms of you get back this footage, and then you're like, what am I going to do with it? And how does the the tone of the music then because without sound yeah super eight, anything yeah exactly and so i when pairing the huggy bear with it it was and particularly the slowed down mm -hmm. aspect of it it's funny because there's a way that i use music that has to do with it's almost like the tone of it yeah and so i felt like the the tone of it fit more so than the actual i would say the sometimes working with music especially that's so rock and pop oriented the yeah. music can completely overshadow what you're trying to do with the visuals for sure and so i just felt like it was the right tone it was the right like grouchy feel for it and yeah. i think that there's so much that's happened with the women's march in particular in terms of especially the analysis of it after that it's just mm -hmm. i like that reading of it it's it's not what I honestly when I was pairing the music with it I didn't have a really particular like oh I you know I want the music to do this in terms of the messaging it was more like I need it to be like this in terms of the tone sure and um, yeah but I think that's a really because I don't have I only found out it's interesting only recently since I started listening to the New York Times podcast <laughs> was I <laughs> when I listened to the whole one about the women's march so it's so funny because I came down here and then um, went back home and you don't have the same analysis right 
and you know and and a lot of that stuff that happened in terms of the whole leadership struggle and I shouldn't say leadership struggle but in terms of the I don't know how to summarize it aptly or correctly yeah but, I don't either uh, but uh, there was problems with trans yeah inclusion and there was problems with white women pushing out women of color from the totally. board yeah. essentially absolutely um, is I think the like real real overly simplified version of what was yeah so I only found out about that background to it probably like a year ago or something huh. within this year absolutely yeah. and it was from this New York Times podcast that I listened to and I was like I was like whoa I didn't realize like in terms of my issues with it at the time I thought that the you know there was like this really great sign that I wish that I had caught because it was all about the signs that film yeah, really and sure. so and I think that was also a nice way to kind of get around the I didn't know how or what I wanted to shoot at that event and it was just it was great because um, one of the people that appears in it it kind of just starts out like they're making a sign for the women's listening circle and all that sort of stuff and then it was just like signs to signs to signs to signs and that was an easy one in terms of oh my god the signs are so great but there's yeah. a sign that a black woman head who is like you know, basically like you're all going to come out to the Black Lives Matters March next oh, right I remember <laughs> a photo of her went viral yeah. yeah yeah and it was yeah absolutely you know and it was also there was something too about it felt very much like um, I had uh, I think that that March was valuable in a lot of ways uh, but I think that there was also you know there was definitely a feeling when you're at it you're like oh I feel like everyone's kind of like a university professor or something like I don't know yeah. and, and I don't want to like I don't know I feel like that is somehow like a really but but it felt like yeah it was filled with a lot of white women of means and you know speaking from really that perspective too like you yeah. know I'm uh, I teach at a university I teach part-time at a university which is a very different thing but yeah. it's still you know in a way um, that is my community as well yeah for sure and so and i can blend seamlessly into that community and so i could see though that i was like okay interesting this is you know the in terms of the reading in terms of also the messaging with the pink yeah. hats and all. yeah so awkward. it you know even at the time but still the yeah. craziest thing about the women's march to me that no one ever discussed was why they all our cell phone service was blanked no one talks about oh, that i didn't know about that all the cell phone service was blanked. That's and so a, that's a pretty standard protest tactic. I feel like when I was still going to a lot of protests in New York, they started doing that wow. where they can just kind of shut down cell phone service so people can't organize. Um, so I thought that was like black block activity. Yeah. Yeah. So that to me was really mind blowing in terms of I'd never been in a situation where and there was also a lot of um, things got started in terms of I don't know if they got started late but there is a period of time where there's probably about an hour and a half that everyone couldn't move you, right. couldn't, you couldn't physically move yeah because just so many people crunched in yeah and no one had cell service or knew what was going on and um, and then finally they opened up another one of the boulevards in Washington so that people could move and they opened up a completely other route because right. basically it was the route to the the Washington Monument mm -hmm. was kind of like the route that they had sanctioned, but then because of, anyways, they had to open up another one. And I always think of that in terms of, I was like, wow, there was this feeling that 
because um, it's so hard to be in that kind of crowd for oh, yeah, that long. Oh, yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, and so there's this feeling that everyone is just like, we don't know what's going on. We're just going to yeah. wait. Just going to wait it out. Yeah, and um, and I always think about that in terms of the the moment that I think was really good about it. Yeah. And that it, um, yeah. And I just also, I don't know, I think it's, regardless of all the other political issues with the march, I still think it's great that that many yeah, people of showed up. Mobilizations on that scale are going to be fucked. Like, they're going to be flawed, but they're also, it's huge. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I feel like having just seen a little bit of your work that I can, I can break down these sort of two... Um, I can break the 13 films I saw up into two discrete categories. One is the like the Women's March, where it's like uh, an event that would be happening anyway that you are documenting in some way, and mm-hmm. like the um, the two wrestling film. Is it one wrestling film or is it two? There's it's actually two wrestling. It's two yeah. separate ones, right? Yeah. And one of them has like a Chicks on Speed song or something. Yep. Was it Chicks yep. on Speed? It was Chicks on Speed. Oh hell yeah! And yeah. the other one was like a Tribe Eight song, maybe maybe not Tribe Eight. I actually had to. Um, this was the the second part of the of the first one yeah of the and i actually had to because i worked with someone on the sound uh-huh. for this and i had to ask him what the name i don't think it was tribate though but it was because i it, that one was the one that i forgot the name of and yeah. i was like i hate that i forgot the name of that and so you need to tell me who did it it's that kind of vibe though like that kind of like uh like it's the late 90s and there's some tough girls doing hard rock yeah kind of vibe you could be l7 or something i'm not that familiar with their catalog um but um I can't believe I recognized the Chicks on Speed yeah, song this, on this speed. many years later. Yeah. But then there's this uh, kind of other section of your films, which are more, um, if not narrative, like in a conventional sense, like mm-hmm. telling a story like the car, uh, Rat Rod that we talked about, or mm-hmm. there's the, the Courtney Love film or the one with the um, like pubic hairstyling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, I don't even know how to describe by this truck as on an audio thing, so I'm not even going to try. I hope okay. that there, maybe we can get to that. But um, yeah. you must think about the two differently when you like going into making making one versus the other, right? Like mm-hmm. you go to the women's march, you're just filming around. Yeah. Whereas, like, how did, what's the genesis for like that? There, you did a, you had a film that is. It's Courtney Love's stage banter. She's being a complete mess. It's really beautiful. And then it's cut with someone you know, like wearing a wig and some like glittery underwear, dancing around like a motel room, it looked like, kind of pantomiming as Courtney Love. And it's really, again, it's like playful. It's really fun. It looked really cool. It was really well put together in a way where it seems like a cohesive piece of work and not just like something sloppy, you know? Um, And it, I think, is about like also the gender of the person playing Courtney Love is unclear. Um, And so, but they seem more like on the mask spectrum than the person. It might even be the same person actually as the rat rod. Who knows? But um, it's like you're, dealing with gender you're dealing with people that don't fit into gender categories or like don't get categorized super easily within uh conventional binaries but also playing with those signifiers right yeah that's funny because ian so that was actually really early the courtney love one was really early uh because that was shot in 2004 whoa yeah so that and that was one that i recently 
rediscovered because there's a few films that I had that were on either Ectochrome or Kodachrome, Kodachrome, and uh, they were kind of in the vault and they only came out when Amy started, you know, was like, I need to see them all. Yeah. And uh, so that one came out and I always thought it was too underexposed and there's moments of underexposure absolutely in it, but um, I always thought that it was kind of unusable in a way and it... when I had first watched it, I'd probably watched it on a really dim projector as well. So I was yeah. like, oh, this doesn't work as well as I need it to. But that was my uh, one of my roommates at Mount A in Sackville. Oh, cool. Ian, who was a... He's so funny. He lived in Newfoundland and he was someone that it was kind of like there was no choice. You know, he was out when he was yeah. like 10 you know, because he was so identifiable in terms of having a oh, gender yeah. identity that wasn't, especially the strict mask of rural Newfoundland, you know, which is where he grew up. And like, uh, I'll tell you my one story about a person from Newfoundland after we're done recording. Yeah. And Ian is uh, amazing. And so he often, I have a few films of Ian, but Ian was always doing drag before I even really knew what drag was or, you know, this sort of thing. And so he loved Courtney Love and still does. And so it was just kind of a thing where it was like, let's make a film. Let's, you know, let's listen to, you know, what, uh, whatever song it was. Violet, I think it was. It wasn't the, the music that we did was actually different than what the, the original song was. Oh God, shoot. Um, I've even forgotten what the original song was because Ian couldn't quite remember, but we just kind of synced it up with uh, Olympia was what we yeah. did for the oh, you're right. the Olympia. screening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's not actually Olympia that he's listening to because he's, he's listening to something off Celebrity Skin. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, Ian's, you know, he, he's someone that had a gender identity that, you know, it was always like he was always getting hit on by men, by straight men. And yeah. it was... Is something that was like happened started happening so early and he was always like you know he'd always be getting like he'd either be getting gay bashed or cat called by like it was one or the other right. from you know these dudes all over the place and so that was kind of my early experience with gender identity in terms of um, just even thinking about it I think and having friends that took up that space and we didn't really have it so funny in terms of how queer has evolved in terms of the the theory and the vernacular and you know like in the early 2000s when you're in like rural you know east coast like you're just kind of like isn't it funny like oh god it's so like you know it's both also scary and also just kind of like there's an aspect to getting catcalled like that where you know like ian was pretty tough in a lot of ways in yeah, terms of like he had sure. just been dealing with it all his life so he's just like fuck yeah you know like it's he wasn't afraid to kind of you know you, you've sussed out the situation but he generally wasn't afraid to kind of push back or just you know um yell back or anything like that especially you know it's like a group of teenage boys who you're just like fuck you you know it's yeah. like nice fucking ass and then they're like oh no you're a dude you know so it would right. be both you know, and we'd just be kind of having conversations about, oh my God, it's so funny, eh? Like all these dudes are you yeah. gay bashing you or thinking that you're a woman. It's interesting too talking about this because I feel like all of your films are so feel so queer. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just like 
that like my gaydar is well tuned or if they're like explicitly queer you know I think some mm-hmm. of them obviously are yeah but then others it's just like it just felt gay to me watching them or whatever mm-hmm. but there's there's like no element of tragedy uh, and I think that has to be on purpose right like it yeah absolutely and it's interesting because I think also in my um, you know without getting too much into specifics of my you know, personal life, I guess. Sure. Uh, yeah, there's definitely been lots of opportunity for, and tragedy <laughs> in terms of sure. just, yeah, and I also, but I always carved my identity around working through it and not letting it impact how I was in the world. Because I think I felt like that would be the ultimate thing that would be the saddest and I think also, too, um, it's interesting because it's a huge theme and there's a, the documentary that I'm working on right now, which is digital, yeah. um, is about an artist named Jim McSwain, who is someone from the East Coast who he's in his 70s now, and he personifies that. And I also wonder if it's also because of being with people like Jim. Like, Jim and I worked together at Center for Art Tapes, and at that point he was probably in his um, early 60s, and had been an artist for 30, 40 years at that point at least. Yeah. Longer. Yeah, 40 at least. And um, I don't know. It was kind of like very much that's something that we all had in common in a way. And I th- and I don't know if that was also a weird East Coast thing too where it was sort of like that was just how we approached it where it was like, well, we're going to get through it and we're going to... Um, not tell the story could be told that you know it's been awful right and but that's not the story that we feel is the most accurate reflection of who we are or where we're going so I think that there's been um, yeah uh, a purposeful I don't know I've just never been attracted to this I love conversationally I love you know, kind of talking about those Sure, topics. yeah, let's sit in a room all day and talk about getting beat up as kids or whatever. Yeah. But, like, I feel like um, the, like, tales of queer tragedy are more for um, straight gays. Yeah. Um, I remember this woman, Colette something, she's a poet in Athens, Georgia. She made a tweet the other day that was mm-hmm. like, I just want to see, like, a trans bank teller in a movie. Mm-hmm. And then turns out in John Wick three, uh, perfect Keanu Reeves. There's a switchboard operator who's trans. Who like it's not a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a plot point at all. Yeah. It's just a trans person living a life. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, why is it so hard to s- see? I guess yeah. I guess I I'm just reiterating what you're saying. It's nice to just talking about discussing making art about queer joy does not erase the fact that we all got beat up when we were young for not doing gender right. It doesn't erase the fact that people were yelling on the street or whatever, or like feelings of being unsafe in gas stations. It, but I don't I don't know why the tendency prior to, I feel like there's this trend now towards this like celebration of queer joy. Uh, the trend has been sort of to, to only discuss adversity. And I feel like your work does a really good job of uh, just like kind of not not bothering with the adversity, like not addressing it, and I think that's really good. Yeah, I think that it's um, it's both a conscious choice and it's also um, 
you know, I think there's an aspect too where I feel like I've been incredibly lucky. Sure. And, but I also think it's a way I frame things as well. Like there's, there's, there's a luckiness in terms of, I think my disposition and my having maybe had tools or opportunity to get over things in a way that, um, yeah, I was just able to have access to at the time, which helped a lot. And, um, so yeah, so I can see at the same time, I think it's, I think about why queer narratives are the way they are a lot because Uh there's, uh, I've been involved in a number of film festivals and I see, you know, there's that cliche about kind of like, Oh, every lesbian film, like someone's going to die, you know, and you know, or X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And, um, or they do a murder together or they, (laughs) yes. I feel like that's a lesbian film trope is like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Heavenly creatures, et cetera. Uh Yeah, for sure. And, um, but I think about what part of me thinks that it's just what gets funded and what gets, you know, in a, in a specific system of, um, drama, I feel like you almost have to tell those stories if you want to get a movie funded. I think there's, so I think there's an aspect that's that, that is actually very, um, just what I have all kinds of deep seated issues with like the TV and film industry because I worked in it as well. So that also helps out a lot. Uh, but there's part of me that thinks it's partially very pragmatic where it was kind of like, no, but you have to have this like really dramatic story. And we're like, where's the conflict? Where's the conflict in this story? Like I'm able to do in my work something that doesn't have to have a conflict in it because I work both in experimental film and experimental documentary. And even my narrative work in documentary um, that I'm directing at this point, it's funny because I'm in this process of doing, working with an editor um, on a project that myself and another visual artist, Aaron Foster, are directing together. So we're working with an editor and you get to see these kind of cuts come back. And even within that, there's like a, there's a visual narrative, but there's room to not have to make it so explicit in terms of, you know, let's say the subject that I'm working with had, um, X, Y, and Z happen. It's kind of like, oh, we want it, but we don't have to do that because we don't have to worry about distribution. We don't have to worry about this. Sure. It's almost like the stories fall into a specific way of being told. If you are working in something that is either indie, even in indie, it's like that, you know, yeah. like even at the queer film festivals, yeah, no, or gay and lesbian. Need... Like you need that kind of, you know, and that's a dramatic. I feel like that's a problem of drama, and that's like the the problem with a lot of fiction film is that it it narrows everything into an area where you have to have a story that has a particular flow and a particular right. act structure and a particular amount of conflict, and then you I know, just wonder why the drama can't just be that like a trans woman robs a bank and then doesn't know where to hide from the cops. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and that the gender has mm-hmm. nothing to do with it. Or like two lesbians are in a relationship and one of their moms dies. Like they mm-hmm. you know there's all these uh long running fictional story structures that exist with straight people mm-hmm. where their straightness is not the component. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And it's like yeah, so I think And the other thing too is that I actually I think part of it too is that because I've definitely had conversations with people who are queer who it's almost like if you're not making work that addresses the adversity that you've faced, then you're being, um, you know, kind of like an apolitical queer. Like, I think that that gets leveled 
a lot more than you think. And yeah. it's funny because like I've literally had conversations with people where I'm like, I really don't like I, I myself don't like that. And I, I think it's insulting to think that, you know, anyone who is in any kind of, you know, let's say outsider, minority, whatever, you know, yeah. has to be making work about their struggle. And I've literally had conversations with people where they're like, no, but that's like what you should be making work about. That's what everyone who is, you know, like, and I'm to just like, end? no, Also, no. <laughs> that lady jerking off with all those dildos in a pickup truck was political. Like that felt political to me. It was fun, but it also, it felt political to me. The, this is the film that I said I wasn't going to talk about because I don't know how to just explain it to a radio audience. But that's, I can I can explain it. Yeah, will you explain yeah. it? So, buy this truck is a film that is starts out as a a film that's about someone selling their truck essentially and going over the features, mm-hmm. and then turns into essentially a soft porn. A soft porn by me, so it's not really a soft porn. But it turns into an extended look at features in terms of what else can be done in the vehicle and why else someone might want to buy this truck right. based on what's gone on in it. But it's the other thing is that it's a film that is filmed in my vehicle. <laughs> so it's a love letter to my truck, which oh, I love. Beautiful. And it's a piece that I, both that and Valentine's Day, I co-directed with my partner, Bella Giancotta. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah, and Bella stars in it. And that also comes from, we decided to start making movies for Valentine's Day. Okay. Yeah, as something. That's to, really adorable. Yeah, so that is a, a big collab, absolutely. And, but yeah, it kind of started out with this idea of, you know, let's essentially, let's make a porn in the truck, but what's the setup? And the setup was selling the truck. Yeah. And how would you advertise the features of this truck specifically? But then it turned into... You know, obviously, someone called it the masturbation truck last night, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, I was like, like you know that the the movie, the masturbation truck. I was like, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, um, yeah. So, and also just being, and the other thing that happened too is we wanted to make this ode to the Hitachi magic wand. Oh yeah, which that comes across. Yeah, so that was also so it's in a way also an ode to mechanical culture. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like it's playing with. Like much of your work, it seems like it's playing with traditional binary gendered signifiers and like subverting them or just like flipping them over and using them to mean something else or just showing the viewer that these things can be more complicated than they seem to be Mm -hmm. um, in a way that I really like. Also, having lived through um, the era of like... uh, there being multiple zines of people fucking different parts of track bikes in Portland in the early 2000s what? that I thought was the worst, most corny thing on earth. Truly a terrible trend. I am just very impressed that you were able to do a thing like that. That was Maybe it's just that I'm different, but like sexualizing a vehicle like that, that f- felt, it felt sensual. It felt very funny. Like the timing of the... Um, the um, glove, glove glove box, yeah, popping open and just like having uh, less and less uh, sex toys in it each time, you know, as one is grabbed, and then like the Hitachi in the secret compartment. It's all just so. It's so, and then the finale, the culmination of the film, which I won't give away in case anyone gets to see it, is just 
really, it's like campy and fun and cute and hot. And it's really, it's good. It works really well. Again, I don't mean to just gush. Thank uh, you. Pun intended about your work, but it's, you know, I think that's why I wanted to talk to you is because I'm, I find it so interesting. And so, and it seems weird to me that someone could watch that mm-hmm. uh, and say like, oh, you're an apolitical queer who doesn't care about the struggle because you're, film isn't about like get, getting beat up or whatever or getting uh, denied an adoption yeah. what are you people, gonna do who knows those people exist and my yeah. films aren't for them exactly. <laughs> um, cool do you want to start wrapping up do you yeah wanna... sure um, yeah I think actually something that I sh- I should mention yes just in terms of even growing up and I think when I was kind of talking about it, I feel lucky in a certain way yeah um, I think one reason I feel lucky is that like, I grew up as a kid that everyone was like, oh, you're a tomboy, or oh, like, it was kind of, I think it was probably assumed that I was going to be gay really early on. Yeah. And um, I don't know. Anyways, I was I was very lucky in that I certainly had people like, oh, are you a boy or a girl? Or like, that was like absolutely something that happened to me. For sure. A ton when I was really little, like I would say like before the age of eight or so, and... I think there was definitely a certain aspect of conforming um, that happened probably between more the ages of like eight and 14 specifically, but like at the same time, not really. Like, it's funny. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to try and like all the girls are wearing makeup. I'm going to try that. Sure. And then I was just like, oh yeah, that's never going to work. Like I was this just like, no. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I will say that what was kind of unique about where I grew up is that I felt like it was kind of like, there wasn't, this might be also, the way that women were, I think, also in the Maritimes was very much like, I remember someone coming down from Montreal and being like, wow, there's all these dikes everywhere. And I was like, no, they're not dikes. They're like, there is a, a certain amount of masculinity. Have you been to Pittsburgh? You're here right yeah. now. Every, so there's so so many straight women look like 90s butches in this yeah. town it's unbelievable yeah so that yeah so there was that absolutely and i think also too though but i grew up in a like i grew up on a dairy farm yeah, i grew sure. up uh you know like and in places that it should have been way harder i think in a certain respect and i don't know i've been very fortunate i think with the people around me that weren't um overtly judgmental and also there's a certain element too where I kind of let I would roll with things or I I always kind of thought like if someone's being a dick they're being a dick like I never internalized the kind of like um, this is a reflection on you yeah yeah and so but I do think that that and that's the part where I'm like it depends though because I think if a few things would have been different that could have gone a totally different way sure so in a certain respect I also see the why you would want to tell those stories because if you haven't had a chance to exercise them yeah doing so I think is actually incredibly cathartic and it in a way um, it's a mode of communication that I think yeah it really, yeah, really helps authentically um, it just isn't um, something that I've yeah, uh, I just feel like the the whole battle for me. I want to just show people 
doing their thing yeah. in the way that it's happening in front of me. And so the other thing is that I just decided to start documenting. I was like, I'm just going to document the community around me. That's all I'm going to do. I'm, I love observational filmmaking. Sure. That is, and that's the style of cinematography that I do too. I mean, I often have to do very much like sit down interviews, lit in a certain way, da 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 da, like, you know, um, shoot the right kind of coverage that the editor needs in the cut. But um, when it comes down to it, the kind of filmmaking that I love is observational visual storytelling where you're not, you, you know, you've got the location and you let it roll. And so I think that also is part of how the representation happens too is I just want to take I want to take people that I know and put them on screen yeah for sure yeah. it's beautiful yeah cool cool I think this is do you have anything else you want to say no no that great. is wonderful thank let's, you so much this has been uh, great it's really lovely to I don't get a you know this is all kind of new in terms of me talking about this work specifically uh -huh. um, so yeah I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time and asking me very articulate questions and also just it's always really great to hear someone else contextualize your work and kind of think about things that you hadn't thought about in terms of how it reads to audiences what are the you know I'm, I'm always like in terms of literature yeah. like once you put something up or out there it's you can have all the intent in the world but it's ultimately it's free now yeah, and it's free for, for sure. people to get whatever they yeah but I love that that is one of the great things about making work for me is that it becomes this other thing yeah. that is independent of me. So. Well, I went to school in Olympia But everyone's the same What do you do with a revolution? Well, I went to school Olympia, hey, um, it's me. Uh, I'm still whispering in a basement. Um, look, uh, thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for, um, thank you for what else? I don't know, man. I'm fucking falling apart. Um, the, um, but I need to get this podcast out. Uh, oh, thank you to Hole for um, this song, and thank you to Courtney Love for being a wild mess, and thank you to Patty Schemmel for your long-term sobriety, which uh, has been a huge thing for me to think about when I'm having trouble with that stuff. Um, thank you to Lucara Kulta, who wrote the theme song, and thank you to Sue for being such a welcoming and wonderful interview subject I, to a literal stranger who just approached her after a film screening and said hey will you be on my radio show and she was so stoked and there's this whole moment at the end where I she kept she like took time to intentionally thank me for the role that I played in the interview which I would normally cut something like that but it's just so Canadian um that I thought it was too cute not to not to keep. So um, don't think I got a big head. I just I love a polite Canadian. Um, and that is it. We're done with the episode. Um, fuck ice, free Palestine, burn down every prison. Um, everyone should have an abortion whenever they want. 
no cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria. I'm out. Bye.